Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's um, Oakshot Lecture. My name is Paul Kelly and I'm Pro-Director of the School and a Professor of Political Theory. We're particularly pleased to have as our lecture, lecturer, a prolific and sophisticated political thinker in the person of Jesse Norman, MP. Let me say something a little bit about Oakshot first. Many of you will, will be familiar with him, but it's important to... to draw attention to his contribution and place in the history of the school. The title of the series honours Michael Oakeshott, who was Professor of Political Science here at LSE from 1950 to 1969. Oakeshott succeeded the left-winger and Labour activist Harold Lasky, which is a, an interesting contrast. Oakeshott was a prominent figure in the life of the school and the development of political studies in Britain. He shaped a generation of academics that populated political science departments in the great expansion of UK universities um, following the Second World War. Oakeshott was an anti-rationalist and is often described as a conservative, although he disliked ideological labelling. His conservatism he describes as a disposition, not a doctrine, and, it's complex, and his complex and subtle thought has had a profound influence on many across the political spectrum. It's not impossible to meet people who describe themselves as left Oakshottians, but we can tease that one out later if we wish. He's been rediscovered by a generation of conservative political thinkers who've sought a way to discuss conservative politics and ideas outside of the rigours of uh, a neoliberal ideology. Oakeshott was against ideological politics, not simply identifying a conservative alternative to a dominant liberal or socialist ideology. Given this aspect of Oakeshott's thoughts, it's especially pleasing, as I say, to have a conservative politician who is also a thinker and one significantly influenced by Michael Oakeshott's work. Norman, who's MP for Hereford and South Herefordshire, has published an edited collection on the influence of Michael Oakeshott, but Jesse Norman's interests are much wider. I won't go through all of them. Um, they're available on Wikipedia, and it would just be obvious if I was to read out the Wikipedia entry. He was educated at Eton and Oxford before entering the city, returned to UCL, where he held a research fellowship and completed a PhD in the philosophy of mathematics, Sub subsequently became a fellow of Policy Exchange, where he authored a number of important pamphlets. In 2010, he entered Parliament and published the widely acclaimed book, The Big Society. He's established himself as an independent-minded figure in his own party and has often caused some difficulty for his party leadership. Most recently, and relevantly for our purpose, he's published an intellectual biography of Edmund Burke. Tonight, he'll speak on the subject of Burke, Oakeshott, and the intellectual roots of modern conservatism. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Norman, MP. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Paul. Uh, and um, thank you, uh, members of the LSE faculty and staff, students, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great honour to be here. Um, uh, I'd particularly like to pay tribute to the London School of Economics uh, and, of course, in particular to Professor Richard Sennett uh, uh, for inviting me to give this Michael Oakeshott 
Memorial Lecture. It, it is a huge honour to speak about Oakshot. I first came across his thought uh, while I was in university in the uh, 1980s, the early 1980s. When he died in 1990, I was living in America, but even so I kicked myself at length for never having made the journey to visit him in his stone cottage in Acton in Dorset, a defect only partially remedied when I edited a collection of memorial essays about him for Duckworth uh, in 1992. Part of the point of that collection was to capture the courtly power of his thought before it was fed into the academic mill. Uh, And it is notable now, 20 years later, that that same courtly power is evident in the rapidly expanding field of Oakshot studies. It's also an honour to address you here at the LSE, at an institution in which Oakshot flourished for so long as the Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Department of Government, and which proved so fertile an environment for the development of his extraordinary late philosophy. Oakshot's preferred metaphor for social and cultural exchange was that of conversation, and I suspect he would have been the first to acknowledge the conditioning effect of the LSE and its manifold internal and external conversations upon his own thought. My subject this evening, ladies and gentlemen, is Burke, Oakeshott and the Intellectual Roots of Modern Conservatism. We shall end with politics, but I want to start uh, with philosophy, and specifically with a fascinating but I think underappreciated article by Oakeshott's friend and executor, Shirley Letwin, the mother of my great colleague Oliver Letwin, MP, who gave this lecture two years ago, an article which appeared in the May 1975 issue of the academic journal Political Theory. This may seem slightly paradoxical, because ostensibly, at least, the article is not about Burke or Oakeshott or, indeed, even conservatism. Uh, On the contrary, it's entitled Hume, Inventor of a New Task for Philosophy. Shirley Letwin's central thrust is to suggest that none of the common readings of David Hume is quite right. Not Hume uh, the great uh, sceptic, not Hume the logical atomist, not Hume the positivist or empiricist, not Hume the naturalist, not Hume as a founder of the social sciences. Rather, she argues that Hume is engaged uh, on an entirely different project altogether that of recognising and reflecting upon both the limits and the richness of human life itself. On this view, man is for Hume, quote, an inventive species, and, I quote, the variety and complexity of human institutions are the products of human invention. And that is all there is. Ideas originate in our sense perceptions, not in God. Reason is guided not by the divine light, but by the emotions. Indeed, it is for Hume famously, quote, the slave of the passions. What we would call pure mathematics is merely a relation between human ideas, not the product of any faculty of insight into a transcendent realm of truths. Justice and morality are not derived from nature or from God's law, but from what Hume terms artifice or contrivance. Civilization is to be identified with, I quote, understanding rules, standards, and discriminations, and to make proper discriminations, a man needs to be sufficiently well-versed in the appropriate procedures, principles, and rules to recognize when they are relevant. Error arises 
when we poor humans pass from one kind of idea to an apparently similar one without noticing the difference. This is not all. For Letwin's Hume, quote, we have at our disposal the whole of human civilization within which we can move by way of emendation, excision, addition, variation, or criticism. We act and think always on something that is truly given to us. She says, Hume was the first philosopher who disclosed bluntly that there is nothing but the cave, yet nonetheless valued what is in the cave without seeking to escape. And, of course, you will all recognise the allusion to Plato's Republic. For Hume, Letwin concludes, although the philosopher understands a great deal, he cannot explain everything. He can live, however, with mystery. He admits freely that the power to create and to order ideas remains an enigma, but he does not in the least doubt, disdain, or deprecate all that it has created. Now, at this point, the reader's nostrils may be quivering, and not without reason. This is splendidly revisionist stuff, but can it really withstand critical examination? We can leave specific rebuttals to the Hume scholars, who will note en passant Letwin's slightly unnerving acknowledgement uh, that even Hume seems on occasion to be unaware of the project which she ascribes to him. The real problem is that her argument requires us to ignore or downplay what is most distinctive in Hume, the mordancy of his scepticism. Letwin's Hume is a creatist, even mystical conservative, one who clears the philosophical decks in order to explore what remains in a connoisseurial spirit. But the real Hume is surely a wildly subversive thinker who is temperamentally incapable of taking anything at face value. Far from avoiding doubt, disdain and deprecation, he specialises in them. Almost every aspect of nature, human and otherwise, is grist to his cool but vigorous scrutiny. So what's really going on here? An initial clue lies at the very end of the article in the footnote attached to its final word. Quote, for an unambiguous elucidation of this view of philosophy, see Michael Oakeshott on human conduct, Clarendon, 1975. It is not an enormous leap of logic, then, to see here not merely a highly ingenious reconstruction of Hume's thought, but a quiet act of homage in which Letwin places Oakeshott in a sceptical tradition which, as she sees it, originates in the modern era with David Hume. But this itself creates a mystery, for one might have expected the link to be not to Hume, but to his rather younger contemporary and acquaintance, Edmund Burke. After all, aren't Burke and Oakeshott the two greatest British conservative thinkers of the past 250 years? Indeed, aren't they, some would argue, the two greatest British political philosophers to core since Locke? The matter becomes more surprising still if we look closely at one specific issue, that is their anti-rationalism, their views of the scope and limits of human reason. This is one of the central intellectual roots of conservatism throughout the ages. Now, Burke's subject, views on this subject are often rather misunderstood. In particular, some parts of the reflections on the revolution in France and other late writings are often seen as a polemic against reason as such. After all, Burke famously denounces what he calls the sophists, economists and calculators who have, he claims, extinguished the glory of Europe forever. 
For him, Rousseau is the insane Socrates of the National Assembly, a philosopher whose person and thought were dedicated to an ethics of vanity, which exalted the self and ignored values of honour, duty, humility, and personal virtue. He is invariably rude about metaphysicians, quote, the most foolish of men, and who, dealing in universals and essences, see no difference between more and less. On this view, then, the Enlightenment sets up a deep opposition between tradition and reason, between ancient prejudice and modern ideas. And Burke is a throwback, a pre-Enlightenment anti-philosopher who defends tradition and prejudice and attacks reason. Unfortunately, this is a hopeless misreading. In the first place, Burke was in many ways an Enlightenment figure, highly educated, making his mark in London in the, 19, in the 1750s and 60s amid the hubbub of new ideas, conversing with men of the genius of not merely David Hume, but Adam Smith and Samuel Johnson. He had read and review, reviewed Rousseau, Montesquieu and Voltaire, and had been much influenced by Enlightenment thinking on history and historiography. And in his politics and his life, he worked unceasingly to promote reforms consistent with Enlightenment ideals. He had begun to argue for religious tolerance in Ireland as early as the 1760s and wrote a memorandum arguing for the humane treatment of slaves as a preliminary to abolition of the slave trade in 1780, seven years before the abolitionist movement was launched. He had defended the rights of American colonists and pressed for the East India Company to be held to public account for its abuses of power in India. He had practiced scientific agriculture on his much-indebted estate near Beaconsfield. Burke, it is true, reveres tradition and what he calls prejudice. But he does so precisely because he thinks that these preserve and embody human wisdom and the reasoned arrangements and understandings on which society depends. For Burke, man is a social being, and human institutions are ultimately grounded in the emotions which guide and direct man's reason. Institutions are bound together by affection, identity, and interest. They matter for three reasons. First, they constrain each other, competing and cooperating as required to survive, diffusing power across communities, and we would say providing a social challenge to state power and official authority. Secondly, they give shape and meaning to people's lives at work or play, setting rhythms to the day or year, creating overlapping identities and personal loyalties. As Burke famously says in the Reflections, to be attached to the subdivision, to love the little platoon we belong to in society is the first link in the series by which we proceed towards the love of our country and to mankind. Finally, institutions trap and store knowledge. Composed of a myriad private interactions Traditions and practices as it is, the social order overall becomes a repository of shared knowledge and inherited wisdom. Prejudice for Burke, then, is not racial or religious or political bias as such, but simply that composite experience or intuition which works prior to reasoning or the weighing of evidence. It, too, is often a source of wisdom. Burke is then an anti-rationalist, not in opposing reason as such, but in insisting on its limitations. In particular, he draws a deep distinction between what we might term embodied reason, reason as expressed through evolving human relationships, habits, manners, prejudice, and institutions, 
on the one hand, and what he calls metaphysical or abstract reason and ideas on the other. It is because, for him, the French Revolution is the product of a deranged collective reason that the perils of abstract reason are to the forefront in his later life. But the contrast between what I have called embodied and abstract reason is always present in his thought. Indeed, his very first work, A Vindication of Natural Society, is an elaborate parody on the mischiefs deriving from abstract reason. But what are we to understand by abstract reason. In the first place, this is reason divorced from its context. In Burke's words, early in the reflection, circumstances which with some people pass for nothing give in reality to every political principle its distinguishing colour and discriminating effect. The circumstances are what render every political, civil and political scheme beneficial or noxious to mankind. Here again, however, Burke seems to have a deeper philosophical point in mind as well. Concepts from mathematics and the exact sciences can be given precise definitions, which are not tied in any way to a particular time or place. For example, a circle can be defined as a set of points in flat space, an equal distance from a given point. And this will be true now or a thousand years hence, here or in a distant galaxy, as we assume. Similarly, axioms and rules of inference can be precisely specified, such as in Newton's second law that force equals mass multiplied by acceleration. But the same is not true in relation to the conduct of human life and human affairs. Here the principles are imprecise and their meaning heavily governed by context and the distinguishing colour and discriminating effect of circumstance. Of, Of course, I'm... Can you hear me better now? Thank you. According to Burke, moreover, it is a deep mistake in logic to seek to apply abstract principles out of context to human affairs. He says, Aristotle, the great master of reasoning, cautions us, and with great weight and propriety, against this species of delusive geometrical accuracy in moral arguments as the most fallacious of all sophistry. Universal principles are thus never sufficient in themselves to guide practical deliberation. Their imposition always involves a degree of fallacy or logical error. In extreme cases, that error may prove to be disastrous, leading to huge and often damaging unexpected consequences. When Burke talks of the age of sophisters, economists, and calculators in the reflection, it is this error that he has in mind. However, I actually think Burke is onto something still more specific, um, uh, it, could we have the, the first slide? I don't, I don't know how to make that work. Is there a, a means of doing that? Aha. There we go. Perfect. Good. Okay. Um, I think, uh, as I say, I think Burke is actually onto something still more specific. Recall that the logic of the day was based on the Aristotelian syllogism, of which a familiar modern example is this uh, on the screen All men are mortal. Premise one. Premise two Socrates is a man. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. Now, in this form, the syllogism has three elements a major premise, one offering a general proposition, a minor premise, two offering a specific proposition, and a conclusion, three. In a theoretical syllogism, the conclusion is a further proposition Socrates is mortal. Here. In the so called practical syllogism, however, the conclusion, according to Aristotle, is an action. Thus transposed into the world of politics, a practical syllogism 
we can draw on the language of the Declaration of Independence might be as follows. Political principle P, secure the rights to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Premise 1, adopt the policy which best achieves P. Premise 2, policy A best achieves P, therefore 3, adopt policy A. Now, Aristotle, it will be recalled, makes quite a strong distinction between theory and practice. Indeed, in several places he insists that man only deliberates about what could be otherwise. That is, not about the paradigmatically unchangeable truths of mathematics, but about human institutions and human conduct, or what we would call circumstances. This deliberation can be personal or it can be shared and public. It can be political deliberation. But whether it's political or personal, deliberation starts from a given goal and a given array of circumstances of which some and only some will be relevant. The question is, what course of action in the circumstances will achieve the desired goal? Now, Burke was no logician, but we know he'd read plenty of Aristotle, including the politics and the Nicomachean ethics, in which there is a substantial discussion of practical reasoning. So I want to suggest that his position can be reconstructed as a practical syllogism roughly as follows. This is the last syllogism. This is the last syllogism I shall ask you to look at. This is a Burkean syllogism. Political principle P remains the same. Secure the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Premise 1, therefore, becomes one star. In relevant circumstances, X, Y, Z, to achieve P, adopt policy B. Premise 2, star, the relevant circumstances here and now are X, Y, and Z. uh, And therefore, conclusion, adopt policy B. Now, I'm cutting through some technical detail which need not concern us. In particular, Aristotle and rhetoric thinks of practical reasoning, deliberative reasoning, as being conducted in what he calls enthymemes, uh, although these can be ultimately reduced to syllogisms. Um, and there are one or two other details uh, which I will spare you. Uh, but if we uh, uh, see things in this way, then we can immediately see why Burke insists that circumstances give in reality to every political principle its distinguishing colour and discriminating effect. Following Aristotle, he takes political principles to be those involved in public deliberation about what can be changed, in this case by government, and these principles always mention or imply a set of circumstances. Indeed, they paradigmatically have a set of circumstances for their application specified within them, as we can see from two star in the example. Thus, circumstances fundamentally condition the character of practical reasoning. For even when the overall goal is not in question, the practical public reasoner, let's call him or her the politician, must determine what the relevant circumstances are which make A the right policy to achieve it. A similar set might imply policy B or a further set policy C. An obvious policy A may fail depending on circumstances while an unobvious policy B succeeds. Moreover, circumstances include not merely contingent or transitory facts about how things happen to be, they also include more long-term or even permanent facts about human nature or social dynamics. These cannot be determined a priori by armchair reasoning or by mere casual acquaintance or anecdote. They can only come through personal experience and the shared and filtered experience of institutions. Good government for Burke goes, quote, with the temper of the people, and this requires the politician to have both the capacity to master the detail and a deep understanding of human nature. It is little wonder that Burke then says, circumstances of what render every civil and political scheme beneficial or noxious to mankind 
Moreover, and this is sometimes forgotten, the logic of a piece of reasoning can flow in both directions. If an action is unacceptable, then the principle and indeed the overriding goal may have to be put aside or rejected altogether under the circumstances. In effect, then, the politician is constantly seeking to achieve, temporarily at least, a kind of deliberative equilibrium between circumstances, goals and actions. And, of course, the goals of political action are invariably underspecified, often mutually conflicting, and almost always heavily contested. It is this complexity that makes politics so difficult and so fascinating. It is why the art of government is just that, an art. It is why political wisdom lies in great part in the ability to select, to attend to, and master the relevant details, the circumstances, that condition and inform political principles. And it is why politics at its core demands not merely the capacity to take action, but the capacity to deliberate publicly about the policies, uh, about the principles that should inform that action. As Burke says, it is the business of the speculative philosopher to mark the proper ends of government. It is the business of the politician who is the philosopher in action to find out proper means towards those ends and to employ them with effect. Far from rejecting philosophy, then, Burke places it where Aristotle places it, in the centre of public life. But by the same token, we can now see the full force of Burke's critique of the abstract reasoning of the metaphysicians. For they commit the horrible philosophical blunder of confusing the deliberative principles of public action with the theoretical principles of mathematics. They take principles that are universal, anchored in no time and place, and confuse them with principles that do and must make specific reference to given circumstances as they actually are. In a revolutionary context, these abstractions, shorn of their encumbering detail, circumstance and complexity, become slogans used by demagogues to whip up popular emotions and popular support. Thus, a philosophical blunder made by thinkers who should know better can lead to violence and bloodshed. It is little wonder that Burke regards such thinkers, perhaps even more than the foolish revolutionaries whom they inspire, not merely with intellectual disdain, but with horror. Let us then move forward a century and a half to Michael Oakeshott. Oakeshott is highly unusual among British academics of any kind in identifying himself as a conservative, most notably in his 1956 essay, On Being Conservative. In part as a result, Oakeshott and Burke are often joined together, invoked by politicians and commentators on the centre-right who want to identify a conservative intellectual line of succession, buff up their own intellectual credentials, or call philosophical authority in aid of present policy. This is so, even though we can be rationally certain that very few of those who invoke Oakeshott in and around politics have actually read much of him, since they almost ignore, always ignore, his greatest works, experience in this mode, and on human conduct. At first glance, this linkage between Burke and Oakeshott seems well-grounded, for Oakeshott, too, is an anti-rationist who believes, like Burke, that there are intrinsic limitations to human reason, beyond which it is folly to trespass. In his first book, Experience in Its Modes, Oakeshott critically examines the three domains of science, of history, and of practice. These are what he calls modes, independent, self-consistent worlds of discourse, each the invention of human intelligence. Each is conditioned and characterized by a distinct set of organizing categories that have developed over time, but achieved a certain conceptual coherence in their own right. We can think of these modes as offering different frameworks or languages through which the scientist, the historian, and the practitioner interrogate the world. 
Presented with a piece of music, for example, the scientist will see it quantitatively as a set of sounds or wavelengths with a distinct pattern or ordering. The historian will see it as a contingent cultural artefact, the practitioner as offering an occasion for performance. The function of philosophy, according to Oakeshott, is to identify and describe each set of concepts and so make clear each framework's intellectual boundaries. Rationalism, for Oakeshott, is what arises when the Promethean attempt is made to step outside modal constraints themselves. It is the belief that different languages or modes of understanding can be applied willy-nilly to different subjects. In politics, it manifests itself in the confusion, the confusion of science and practice, and so in the ideas that all politics is a matter of technique, and that skilled activities like the activity of governing can be reduced to a set of explicit rules or instructions. Its further implication is that tacit knowledge, the inarticulable knowledge of the craftsman, has no place in politics. At its most politically extreme, rationalism can be seen in totalitarian societies which seek to capture and organise the staggeringly diverse potential of human beings and frame it on some Procrustean bed. But what is more disturbing is to see it in the utterly familiar idea today that politics merely consists of a series of economic, social or cultural problems to be solved and in the anguish that follows when those problems turn out to be deeply interrelated and their solutions to have unanticipated consequences. But rationalism also shapes the minds of its believers. It substitutes a single idea for a messy reality. It dispels sober judgment, complexity and contingency and replaces them with easy slogans and the search for certainty. In short, it encourages a kind of fundamentalism, what Oakeshott calls a politics of faith over a politics of doubt. Oakeshott and Burke, then, both offer a profound critique of the excessive claims of reason. Indeed, we can read Oakeshott as a highly sophisticated and nuanced generalisation of Burke. Burke criticises those who would apply abstract principles to human affairs in the geometrical spirit. Oakeshott characterises the world of science and practice as distinct modes of human experience amongst others and pinpoints the fraud involved in applying one mode to another in general. Burke highlights the importance of circumstance in shaping the application of political principle. Oakeshott gives us a defence of the tacit knowledge of the political practitioner. But we can go further, for both thinkers are in fact pursuing a deeply and distinctively conservative line of thought, one which has its roots in Aristotle. This pushes us away from ideology and towards scepticism and pragmatic principle. And politically, it cuts away some of the leading dogmas of modern politics. On the one hand, it is a devastating intellectual critique of Fabian socialism with its belief in the guiding role of intellectuals in using the state to remodel society, a point with some poignancy perhaps here in the London School of Economics. On the other hand, it undermines the economic fundamentalism of uber-libertarians of the right, and it debunks the seductive claims of technocrats of any party who would reduce all political and social questions to economic ones or indeed substitute economics for politics as such. All is then well and good, except that it isn't. For this whole argument faces one simple and serious problem. If there is this conservative line of succession, if Burke and Oakeshott are both anti-rationalists, if Oakeshott is in fact generalising a Burkean insight, then why on earth does Burke barely feature in Oakeshott's writings? 
Why is his name nowhere to be found in Oakeshott's extraordinary, indeed canonical, 1947 essay, Rationalism in Politics? And far from embracing Burke, why does Oakeshott specifically distance himself from Burke by name in his great essay on being conservative of 1956, classifying himself not with Burke, but with Montaigne, Pascal, Hobbes, and yes, David Hume? The simple answer, I think, is that Oakeshott was not a close reader of Burke and did not hold him in especially high regard. The two are stylistically and temperamentally quite different. Oakeshott, cool, playful, speculative and detached. Burke, warm, serious, practical and engaged. Oakeshott is recognisably a philosopher. Burke, a man of politics, or what he calls a philosopher in action. But there is a deeper answer, for in fact the two men differ about the very nature of conservatism itself. Burke's is a conservatism of value. The social order is what preserves value through time, and it is the duty of those in public authority to preserve and enhance that value for future generations. Oakeshott's is a conservatism of disposition. Man is naturally disposed to value what works, the familiar, the everyday, and the task of government is to generalise that disposition and so preserve man's freedom to pursue his own projects without interruption or oppression. But these different conceptions of conservatism can and do come apart. For Burke, the social order is a providential gift which it is the duty of all those in authority to preserve and pass on to future generations. And his conservatism of value is thus anchored in what we would today call moderate moral community. This carries across from politics to other spheres of human activity and from the public to the private realm. The politician who preaches about upholding established institutions and then grubs up a hedgerow in his own garden has erred for Burke Burke, both in morals and logic. And it is a point of consistency as well as of character and honour for him that a person's conduct should remain the same in the public square and in the home. For Oakeshott, matters are otherwise. There is no providential endowment or embedded value in society as such, and a person's private dispositions may radically differ from those which properly animate government in the public realm. As he puts the matter, and I quote, it is not not at all inconsistent to be conservative in in respect of government and radical in respect of almost every other activity. And in some ways, he himself was just such a radical. Now, I've described these two different conceptions as a conservatism of value and a conservatism of disposition. But if we're determined to extract doctrines from these two highly undoctrinaire thinkers and to give their ideas contemporary tags, we might call them social conservatism and liberal conservatism and say that within the Anglo-Saxon tradition, these find their modern intellectual origins in Burke and Oakeshott, respectively. It becomes easier, then, to see why it is to Hume and not to Burke that Oakeshott and Shirley Letwin on his behalf defers. But if Oakeshott's, or at least the Oakeshott of the 1940s and 50s, is the more purely philosophical account and a work of genuine intellectual elegance in his own right, it is Burke who I suggest has the last laugh. First, because we can now see what Oakeshott was at this time unaware of or underplayed, that his own anti-rationalism in fact owes a lot to Burke. Secondly, because it is Burke's vision of moral community rather than Oakeshott's more neutral and more purely philosophical account which strikes the deeper chord in a modern world seemingly bewitched by materialism and ego. And thirdly, because in fact we can read Burke, the reflective practitioner, the 18th century philosopher in action, 
as striking a body blow in advance to the thought of the Oakshot of this period, of a blow which Oakshot sidesteps in his later work, which supersedes and relocates his critique of rationalism within a different philosophical idiom. For it will be recalled that in experience and its modes, Oakeshott identifies practice alongside science and history as a mode whose proper limits it is the role of philosophy to elucidate. But Burke would ask, how can this be? If practice and philosophy, history and philosophy, are indeed radically distinct, then what account are we to give of the practice of theorizing or of its contingency? In mathematics and the exact sciences, as we've seen, we can give fixed and stable meanings to the concepts and principles we use in theorizing. But elsewhere, and above all, in the public deliberation that is the very stuff of politics, we have no choice but to work with what we have and to give it shape and definition as we can. Or, as Burke would put it, circumstances given reality to every political principle its distinguishing color and discriminating effect. To this extent, at least, politicians all know we are all Burkeans now. And with that, I will close. Thank you very much indeed, and good night. Well, having said good night, I'm actually going to detain Jesse here because we actually have plenty of time for questions. Um, can I invite you to um, indicate if you've got a question? Please wait until the microphone comes to you, um, and I'll um, try and incorporate everybody along the way. So can I start on my far side? So the gentleman in the dark suit, and then the gentleman in the red jump. Jesse, hi. In your book, you state that Burke is against the French Revolution in part because of the brutality of the son culotte and the breakdown of social order. Some other critics of the French Revolution, I'm thinking of Hannah Moore, were clearly against any expansion of the universal voting franchise, even under more orderly means. Do you believe Burke shared that, or would he have proved of the Great Reform Act of 1832 had he lived? Well, well we, we know that Burke um, uh, opposed what he saw as radical um, uh, uh, extensions of the franchise or, for example, annual parliaments, which were proposed, sometimes proposed by senior Whigs, like the Duke of Richmond. Um, so, uh, and he opposed them because he was extremely nervous about the potential effect that that would have um, if... Uh, as it were, allied to uh, revolution within Britain itself. Don't forget, he'd lived through the Gordon riots of 1780. Indeed, he'd had to draw his sword at one point to make his way through the crowd. Um, uh, that were, those were the riots in which the Bank of England was fired, various jails opened, destroyed. I mean, you know, they were very, very serious riots. Uh, Anti-Catholic riots, exactly. Now, the, um, uh, uh, so, so um, of course, it's a kind of parlour game to ask what Burke would say about things now. Um, I personally think he might actually, in fact, have, um, if not welcomed, then at least quickly reconciled himself to the Great Reform Act, which was, after all, a rather modest extension of the franchise, because he would have seen that as uh, a necessary deviation required to preserve the social order as he saw 1688. And so his, his preference is always for reform that preserves that inherited wisdom of institutions in the way I've described. Uh, hi. In conservatism, uh, in, in um, modern conservatism, what's the criteria for deciding which institutions to keep and which institutions to discard? Is it just pragmatism or something else? Um, uh, it's a very good question. Of course, um, conservatives are not by nature disposed to apply criteria in that sense. That, that comes out of a kind of Benthamite 
scientific utilitarian type tradition of a, of a slightly stricter stamp, um, of which the canonical question is, what is the point of that? Um, and, of course, the whole idea of conservatism is um, that, as it were, uh, man is less wise than in institutions, and therefore to put everything to man's, the test of man's own imagination is automatically, in some sense, to have failed. Um, so I don't think there is a unified criterion by which these things can, can uh, be decided. Um, uh, uh, it, it's utterly dependent on context. And, and of course, that carries with it the possibility that great institutions can fail, um, and that others that have little value may survive for contingent reasons. But the whole um, is what preserves, as it were, the, the reasoned arrangements um, that characterise a well-ordered and, and, and well-functioning society. Bob Grant. Uh, Jesse, um, I thought that was uh, excellent, extremely clear, like all the stuff you've written about him. Uh, one thing I would like to ask you about is you say Burke is not mentioned by Oakshot, well, virtually not at all. There is one exception to this. I mean, one does feel that uh, Oakeshott's view, when he doesn't state it, of Burke is substantially like his view of T.S. Eliot. There's just too much value in it. It's bringing value into politics where we can do without it. However, in those Harvard lectures that he produced after the famous essay on conservatism in 56, he actually has a section on Burke, he has a section on Bentham, he has a section on Locke, and he tries to claim that all three of these people are actually Oakeshottian individualists, as if he was working in the direction of on human conduct. Now, anyone who thinks Burke was an individualist, really, as you suggest, I don't think has actually bothered to read him. Uh, um, I, I, I think that's um, such a wise and sensible comment you should be allowed to say as it is, Bob. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Of course, he does have um, a chunk of a lecture devoted to Burke. Um, but as you say, there are, whenever he joins him to others, I mean, he joins him with Bentham at one point. I mean, it's an extraordinary yes, combination. Bentham is the ur-rationalist to start with, but by the time of the Harvard lectures, at least he's against socialism. <laughs> yes. I mean, the other point to make, though, I think is important, is, is that... Is that um, uh, you know, Oakeshott didn't publish those lectures during his lifetime, and um, so we always take a risk in publishing them, and, as it were, uh, uh, ascribing a settled value to them within his thought. Thanks. Uh, Maurice Fraser, LSE European Institute. Um, Jesse, thank you uh, very much. I mean, I found it wonderfully stimulating. Um, what I, I wonder how you see another um, hugely influential figure, should we say, on Europe centre-right, um, intellectually, um, and somebody like Oakeshott with very close links with this school, and that is Friedrich von Hayek. Mm. Because, now, to the extent he didn't like pigeonholing himself either, but he, on occasion, would um, uh, accept the label of, of liberal, um, and uh, though of course he's been very influential as we know on many on centre-right parties, conservative parties on Margaret Thatcher yes. um, so it uh, was the intellectual she tended to, to invoke perhaps more, 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 than, uh, more, more than anyone but huge, but between this sort of the liberal strand and the conservative strand if you like of what could be loosely described as a, a right wing or a centre-right um, position there seem to be, there are, there are very considerable affinities, there's the same aversion to what Hayek called 
Hegel's constructivistic rationalism that we find, of course, in, 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 in Oakeshott. Uh, we find also an attempt to define two types of society along the lines of, of a civil association where just under the rule of law people engage in their, their own pursuits um, and, of course, an enterprise association uh, with, with uh, where, um, uh, directed towards some notion of substantive uh, society is directed by its uh, policymakers or whatever towards a substantive idea of social justice, for example, some idea of the good life, and this too is repudiated by Hayek, just as it is by Oakeshott. So they write in different styles, of course, and they identify and perhaps tend to invoke uh, rather different traditions in European political thought. But in fact, the affinities would seem to be great. And uh, when um, people talk of uh, a liberal conservative position or a broadly centre-right position, uh, I mean, do you think that it does make sense to uh, to maintain, uh, to keep keep them, to apportion them to different intellectual traditions? Are they not doing something very similar, even though their style, their mode of engagement? and writing is, of course, very different. Yes. Um, th- thank you very much indeed for that, uh, Morris. I, um, it would be a brave man who opined with any authority on Hayek and Oakeshott in the LSE of all places, um, and I certainly wouldn't uh, see myself as a Hayek expert. Um, uh, of course, it is true that politicians standardly, as it were, reach for one or two other folks in the, you know, in the, the, folks in the kind of canon. Um, there was that... And, and Mrs. Thatcher famously at one point brandished a copy of the Constitution of Liberty and said to the permanent secretary and some poor suffering soul in the department, this is what we believe, rather grandly. Um, th- there is also that rather apocryphal story um, uh, uh, when she was searching for antecedents that I'm not sure it's true, but it's a lovely story, that she said, we must give that man Oakeshott a knighthood. And, of course, they gave one to Walter Oakeshott, who was the um, warden of Winchester College, rather than to uh, Michael. Um, uh, uh, so politicians don't always get it right. I think the point about the comparison... Well, of course, of course, Hayek wrote an essay saying why I'm not a conservative, but I don't think that's true. I think he is a conservative. Um, the, the target is different in, a, in many ways. Um, of course, Hayek is writing you know, from within a Central European, Viennese conception of kind of the development of... Europe and the kind of absolute horror of what's happened on, on you know, uh, uh, both within the German, wider German-speaking peoples and, of course, to the East. Um, uh, but Oakeshott is not immune to that. And, of course, he writes this book on the social, uh, social contemporary doctrines of, of Europe, which are uh, the social and political doctrines of contemporary Europe, which is, you know, shows the breadth of his reading and thought. Um, of course, Hayek is an economist, although he says that... Um, no one can be an economist who's only an economist, and he's a much wider thinker than that. But those who read Hayek purely in terms of um, the road to serfdom um, are apt to see him as a kind of purely economic, polemical libertarian. And that actually isn't an accurate view, and you only have to spend a few pages in the Constitution of Liberty to see much wi- how much wider he is and how he insists on the individual not being, as it were, an economic agent, though they may be modelled as such, but being considered a much richer conception of human flourishing. So I think there is more um, uh, overlap than many people recognise. Of course, but Oakeshott, by the time he, you know, by the time you get to the 1970s and 80s, o- Oakeshott has disappeared into a very, very rarefied late philosophy, which is all about the examination of the postulates of particular types of thought and particular kinds of practice. And that is uber-philosophical in a way that does take it in spirit an enormously far, an enormous way, I think, from from Hayek himself. Uh, uh, Thank you. Um, Well, in uh, political education, 
uh, an essay included in rationalism and politics all should suggest that there are two kinds of uh, Two kinds of understanding of politics should be offered in uh, in a uh, student in politics. One is historical, and the other is uh, philosophical. And I want to know how do you think the latter one, the philosophical understanding of politics, would make contribution to the political actors like you, as well as uh, to a political analysis. Yeah. Uh, thank you. It's a very interesting question. Um, of course, po politicians um, in Britain. I mean. Everyone in Britain tends to be worried about ideas um, considered, as it were, face-to-face. -face. Um, and so uh, philosophy is a kind of dread word which people don't really use. Um, but uh, my view is that ideas are always in charge, whether we acknowledge it or not. And therefore, um, it's right for politicians to be self-conscious about this. And I, and I think um, Oakeshott would have taken the view that they should be self-conscious about those ideas very seriously. He wouldn't have thought that, that could help at all with the activity of governing. Um, uh, but um, uh, I think that's a mistake. I think there is a what you might call a praxeological kind of reflection which is philosophically inspired and which is enormously helpful. And one way of reading the syllogisms that I laid out there is as a way of giving a characterization of that. Um, you'll have seen I, I, use some, I use some moves which aren't found in Aristotle. Um, you know, so, for example, if-then reasoning or the imperative mood. Um, but that's really just a way of trying to capture the, the forward-facing forward notion of action. Um, so, so politicians tend to be more, um, more to cast themselves in a historical mode, but it's not clear to me that they have any philosophical grasp of what history is either. In the middle there. I was quite impressed to read in your book that uh, when King George III became mentally ill in 1788, Burke tried to, uh, to do his own research on the topic and visited the silence himself. But would it be right to describe him as the father of evidence-based politics? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very interesting question, actually. Um, but, um, because of Burke's view about the importance of circumstance, it, he is absolutely someone who takes very seriously the duty of a politician to embed themselves in the detail if, if you're going to make any recommendations that could be translated into policy or into legislation. And the classic example of this is that in the um, 1770s, Burke um, is rather dismissive of Whig attempts to... Um, Whig worries about the East India Company's growing power and um, Whig attempts to bring them to book. And he, he worries, he has a conservative worry that this is essentially government imposing its will on private property. Um, by the time you get to the 1780s, actually the opposite is true. He's realised that there's a very serious issue of unaccountable power here. And he takes over, he joins um, a committee on Indian affairs, very quickly becomes its driving force, reads absolutely everything, um, publishes through the committee a series of reports of which he writes at least two himself. Um, in other words, becomes the reigning authority in Britain on Indian affairs, without, of course, visiting India, um, but, but, but judging from the reports of people who've been there, an enormous amount of evidence and testimony that have been given to the committee. So I think in a way that's true, and I think Burke would find it very uh, comfortable to be embedding himself in evidence now, preparatory to policy. W what he wouldn't do would think that evidence was a substitute for, as it were, the, the nuanced um, reflective poise of 
the philosopher in action and the self-consciousness that that requires a philosopher to bring to, um, as it were, the, 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 the components of action and the prerequisites of action. A uh, very <clears throat> interesting lecture. Um, my question is about the difference between um, uh, conservatism and libertarianism. What do you see are the major differences? Between conservatism and utilitarianism? And libertarianism. And libertarianism. Okay, so, so um, of course, these words don't have stable meanings. So um, we're talking about a kind of cluster of different things. But in, in the modern, of course, Burke would regard himself as very, very much oriented towards a certain kind of liberal conception of human flourishing. So the reason why the social order is important is because it allows people not, as it were, individual um, freedoms, but the only freedom that really matters, which is the freedom to live your life you know, freely and on your own terms. And of course, it's a, it's a fault, in a way, in that line of thought for Burke, that he never really reflects on what it is to live your life freely on those terms, if your terms are grossly constrained. I mean, he's got an enormous, um, he's got a very good feeling for the people of Ireland who are, who are oppressed by uh, the English and had their rights, particularly the Catholics in Ireland, um, um, very heavily constrained. But in general, um, the liberating effects of as it were, um, that the, the, the less well-off receive through, you know, the kinds of things that a modern society is able to afford them um, don't really feature in his thinking for obvious reasons. Um, but it's a very liberal line of thought. What he doesn't think is that, as it were, um, there are no limits to um, human liberty. He doesn't believe in license, as referred to. He doesn't believe that the human will should always be regarded as unfettered and able to, to range hither and yon. Um, an unfettered will cannot be the subject of duties. And for Burke, the counterpart of, a, of an embedded providential value, uh, as it were, in, in a social order, is that an individual has duties towards the preservation of that value. And so it is, a, it is a much more conservative view. He's trying to preserve and enhance that value. And what's so attractive about his view to me, and I, and I think to others now who reflect on it, is that um, it's such a counterpoint to the arrogance, the materialism, and the me-to-help-yourself um, uh, ethos that you find in so much of public life and human life today. What Burke says is you can't have it all. You've got to, you've got to be preserving the interests of those, not only those who are, who are, still, uh, who are alive now but unable to vote, but those who are not even alive yet, future generations. Um, you've got to preserve that value. And, and I find that, that intrinsic modesty and that sense of restraint very, very appealing. And you don't get that in libertarianism. Jesse, one of the more, I think you could describe it as glib or snidey arguments about Burke's thoughts or comments comes from Hirschman, where he basically says he refutes the idea that sort of stems from Burke that nothing good can ever come out of abstract reason. And with that in mind, I just thought I'd ask, would you ascribe anything positive, say, to the thoughts of pain, etc.? Was there a positive contribution made by that strand? Or is it solely that, you know, it's a slam dunk in terms of the Burkean view that if you rationalise in that certain way, you're going to lead to not just actual turmoil, but, you know, intellectual certainties, certainties that could tell you? Um, it's terribly difficult, different, difficult to have a, a kind of um, an attitude that doesn't purely re reflect one's own prejudices there. I mean, the, the world is divided into people who find Burke attractive and people who find Paine attractive. And if you find Paine attractive, almost nothing that I say um, will persuade you otherwise. But um, the more you look at Paine, 
the less is it possible to like him or admire him. Um, um, I mean, let me just give you a few examples. Um, it, it, Payne was a man who, um, uh, it was a brilliant journalist. Um, uh, he was uh, uh, appallingly treacherous and unpleasant in many ways in his own personal life. He was a tremendous ligger. There's a marvellous story about James Monroe, you know, who then became the president of the United States, um, who was ambassador to Paris and gets Paine out of jail where the revolutionaries have thrown him. The revolutionaries have figured out what Paine's like and they put him in jail um, in the 1790s. And Monroe goes there and gets him out and says, look, you're obviously in a pretty bad way, life in a French jail at the time, not being enormously pleasant. And um, look, why don't you just put up at my house for a couple of days. Um, well, he, he gets he, Payne moves out a couple of years later. He stays with him for two. Years. He then stays with a man called Bonneville for five years. Um, and and Payne is broadly speaking perfectly happy to change um, uh, his views. You know, a, as it were, to, to suit you know, in the rights of man. Payne is is in favour of an elected monarchy. By the time you get to the second part, he's against a monarchy of any kind. I mean, he's kind of making it up as he goes along. And it's very interesting that people one respects um, n- never retain their respect. For pain. I mean, Washington, for example, who was enormously well disposed towards him on the back of common sense, basically found him a completely impossible person to work with him, just as an overweening egoist. Um, so I, I personally don't find much of interest in pain, but pain is a. Um, uh, and of course, Payne's utterly unwilling to. He's got an encyclopedic memory, he's a phenomenal memory for everything he's ever said in the past. And, um, but he never reads. He's never, you know, particularly. Um, and so he's, you know. Um, uh, the result is that it, it's a very, uh, it's a very shallow thought, um, and of course it's possible to um, read him with a tremendous sense of liberation and excitement as you realise that one's own shallow thoughts are mirrored by him. But it, it's interesting that you don't have that experience when you think a bit more about it. I think I uh, pretty much agree, which I don't know what that says about <laughs> well, me. Thank you. Put your hand up. Towards the back there. To what extent would um, Burke and or Oakeshott condone a strategy of concealment and obfuscation to thwart um, democratic demands which are seen as dangerous to the social order? I, I didn't quite hear what you just said. Democratic demands which are seen as dangerous, pejorative to the social order. Do you have a specific example in mind? Yes, I'm going to lower the tone of the conversation and um, I'm not expressing a value one way or the other. But if you look at a um, a political issue such as abortion in this country, and I'm not expressing a view on this, it seems to me that, for example, the law for the past 46 years has been in a state of enormous confusion. It would be a relatively simple matter for a Conservative or a Labour government to rectify that. The um, alibi that this is a matter of conscience, I think, doesn't really hold water. And it seems to me that there is, again, let me emphasise, I'm not concerned one way or the other, it's just the political strategy point. It seems to me here that there is a deliberate maintenance of confusion, which in a sense serves conservative interests. We have a law which is confused and confusing, but um, in practice operates in a very liberal way to contain class and gender demands. 
Well, you've got, uh, I mean, there's an enormous amount of different ideas in that question, um, and I'm not sure I fully understand them. But um, in general, I think Burke's um, soul revolts against any form of deception or um, misleading behavior. He, he's not someone who really, um, uh, uh, who really um, has, you know, he, he's, he's, as I've described, his, his view is that a certain conception of honor or duty has to carry over from the public into the private sphere. And if he thinks something is bad, he generally says it. And, in, and, and as it were, with Brass Knobs on, there, there is one, of course, the difficulty when you have a very enthusiastic, in that sense, and passionate personality, which he increasingly gave, as it were, scope to in, later on in his life, um, uh, is that you can sometimes come to believe your own rhetoric. And, of course, the great example of that is with the king's madness in 1789 because um, Burke finds himself arguing for a regency which would have brought um, the future George IV to the throne acting in place of his father um, as regent. And, um, of course, uh, um, the idea that um, you know, Parliament... Um, uh, should, uh, um, as it were, give way to um, this purely expeditious arrangement, um, uh, having won the constitutional rights of 1688, would have been regarded extremely paradoxical by his um, by his contemporaries, and undoubtedly was. So I think it's a I think it's a, um, it, but these are not faults of deception. These are faults of, in a way, misleading oneself. Gentlemen. <clears throat> you, you speak of Burke's sympathy for the American colonists. Yes. Um, but couldn't the American Revolution be regarded as one of those dreaded rationalist projects? And wasn't Dr. Johnson far more acute when he observed that the loudest yelp for liberty came from the drivers of Negro slaves? a reference presumably to people like Thomas Jefferson, uh, who we now also know was more than a little bit fond of brown sugar as well. Um, I think Johnson saw something very sanctimonious about these people, which perhaps Mm. Burke didn't. Well, it's very interesting that Burke supports the rights of the colonists, um, but he says remarkably little about... The, as it were, the consequences of the American Revolutionary War, um, uh, uh, and um, virtually nothing about the American Constitution or the Reconstruction that takes place in America in the 1780s. Now, um, there are contingent reasons for that. He's completely preoccupied with, with India. He's in the process of conducting the most public show trial in British history, virtually, and is extremely, um, extremely engaged. But um, I think the, the reason why he, he supports the colonists is because he's concerned about an abuse of power by the crown. Um, and you can make the argument that there are lots of points of, of overlap between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. I don't think that argument actually works, um, in fact, um, because whatever you think about the American Revolution, the legacies and continuities of the British influence on America were very heavily maintained. I mean, this was a country that, you know, changed its government, rid, rid itself of a monarchy, um, but it did so within a, an English common law 
um, environment. It maintained the continuities of trade in many ways, the expectations of commerce. Um, you know, the most, the most widely circulating book in the American colonies apart at that time, apart from the Bible, was Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. Um, and so uh, it is quite different from what happens in France after 1789 when, um, you know, there is an, a very thoroughgoing attempt in successive phases, or what amounts to a very thoroughgoing attempt, to rethink the entire basis of society and overturn what exists, and to attack almost every established institution, including the church, the monarchy, um, uh, and uh, the aristocracy, um, and, and, and other subordinate institutions as well. Um, how much does modern conservatism owe? How much does modern conservatism owe um, Locke's to, to Locke's liberalism. And uh, that brings me to my second question. Do you think that the coalition partners share more in common than is generally thought to be the case? So how much does it owe to Locke's liberalism? Um, well, it's, it's, very, um, it's a very big question. It's hard to say. Of course, the, the, the broad context of politics um, is one that is congenial um, within a, Lock- a Lockean framework. But I, I do think that um, uh, there is a... Uh, I think there is a, uh, a more of a Burkean flavour to um, conservative instincts than a Lockean one. I mean, but Burke doesn't believe in the notion of any kind of a state of nature. For Burke, man is a social animal intrinsically social animal, if you sort of mean innately social animal. And the effect of that is that man's natural state is to be in society. There is no antecedent thing compared to which you can, as it were, evaluate what rights man should have had or didn't have prior to, as it were, coming to existence. And this, um, as it were, uh, uh, does inspire these two different traditions in different ways. So a conservative in that will always see, tries to see what there is, as it were, and derive in a pragmatic way in the Burkean tradition an understanding of human life and human well-being from those institutions that are encountered. Um, Some of a Lockean disposition will always be reaching out to a conception of natural law and asking themselves, is this adequate in some sense by that standard? That's much more akin to what we considered earlier as 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 the liberal libertarian belief in the unfettered individual will. It's more congenial to that, I think. So I do think there is a contrast. If you ask the more natural question, of course, um, uh, I I think there are obvious points of overlap, otherwise we wouldn't have a a government, a coalition, a successful coalition government. But um, uh, we may see them coming apart a bit more as we get towards the election. Thank you. Um, Thank thank you for a very very fascinating talk. If, If Practical political reasoning relies, as you've argued, following Oakeshott and, and Burke, on understanding the detail of particular circumstances and dispersed tacit knowledge and, and so on. Do you think the way that political institutions in this country have been moving in the last 20, 30 years has been a good thing or a bad thing? I'm thinking in particular of the rise of the individual political advisor um, and the downplay and the, the role of, of unelected quangos and the downplaying of, of uh, democratic local government and of, on the one hand, on the other hand, civil service departments with long histories and, and deep knowledge? Uh, it's a very good question. I do think that um, uh, many of the historic institutions that allowed 
the distinctively British combination of flexibility and power that, that characterises the British constitution um, have been rather um, eroded and damaged. Um, I mean, it's actually to the credit of this government that an attempt has been made to restore, as it were, the framework of cabinet government, which had rather dropped out of the picture. Um, but nevertheless, there is still an embedded and what Oakeshott would consider a highly rationalist conception of, um, uh, of, of legislation as a kind of continuous machine. Um, you know, Parliament is a continuous machine required to produce legislation as though it were turnover in order to feed a kind of media that is hungry for continuously new stimulus. I mean, that kind of stuff is exceedingly unsettling. And the result is an enormous expansion in the amounts of statute we have on the books, often very ill-considered. Um, and, uh, um, uh, and a view and a rise of professional politicians and a narrowing of the political class. I mean, what you want is the widest possible political class, and not just in terms of background and kind of ethnicity, but in terms of experience, because it is that experience that makes for what Oakeshott would think of as a diverse and stimulating conversation. And since all intelligence is ultimately dialogical, it's in that conversation that social intelligence is ultimately in a public sphere to be found. And one of the things that is so sad in a way that is that, is that we don't have um, uh, the same kind of commitment perhaps to... Um, allow public argument to work its way through Parliament. All legislation is guillotined now, Um, uh, uh, whereas in the old days it used to get talked out, and there's a lot to be said for talking something out. It's a way of of avoiding a lot of stupid mistakes, whereas in fact now many many provisions of bills are never explicitly debated at all, and that's uh, frankly disastrous. Woman at the back. Hi. Um, what do you think Burke would say and what do you think um, about Major's recent comment um, that the current dominance of privately educated um, and affluent middle classes within powerful positions such as politics is truly shocking? Well, I think it's true that um, British politics become absurdly narrow across a whole series of different ways. I, I would mind less if um, you know, the people who were coming in had more of a sense of, as it were, duty. Um, because you don't always find that. And that, you know, the historic arrangement was that, you know, Winston Churchill might have been born in um, Blenheim Palace. He might have been the nephew of a duke, but, you know, um, he was somebody you could go and have a beer with, and he was prepared to die in a ditch for the well-being of the people of this country. So, so um, it's quite a complex picture. Ideally, as I said, you would, you would, you would like it to be widened, not merely socially and, and culturally and economically and um, ethnically, but you'd want, it be, you'd want it to be widened in terms of the experience that people bring to bear. And what is so interesting about, to me at least, about the new intake um, um, in, in Parliament, the 2010 intake in Parliament, is, you know, I have colleagues who, I have a colleague who used to be a professional opera singer. I have one who, who walked to the North Pole. I have one who's rode the Atlantic. I have one who spent 500 days sleeping on the floors of Afghans, walking across Afghanistan. You know, I have, I have colleagues who've actually done an extraordinarily wide and interesting array of different things. When we had a debate on the no-fly zone of Libya, one of my colleagues got up and said that he'd flown in the no-fly zone over Kosovo, and might it be helpful to offer a few thoughts? To which the answer was, hell yes. I think we need a bit more of that. Thank you. At the front. Um, if, we, if we were go to, to go back a few years to your book on big society, um, where do you feel Oakeshott and Burke tie into this notion most predominantly? Well, um, uh, I only ever have one idea, so, so um, this is all the elaboration of a single line of thought, and I regard in different ways, Burke and Oakeshott as um, 
important conditioning influences on the idea of the big society, which isn't my idea, but just one that I've elucidated in the book, or tried to. So um, you see, you see Oakshot in the uh, in the um, recognition that uh, the there is such a thing as a contrast between an enterprise association and a civil association, and that therefore it is in those intermediate institutions that characterise a well-functioning society that isn't, as it were, imposed on by an overweening state regarded to some collective purpose, um, as it were, um, rationalistically um, uh, cut to fit some um, collective project. Um, you, you see even that. In, in the case of Burke, it's in a, more, in, in a way in a more foundational way, which is that um, society is a category of reflection in po- politics at all. In other words, we're not just to think of politics in the traditional categories of the individual and the state that we've grown up with through social contract theory. You know, society in some sense is a, is a tertium quid which we should be reflecting on and exploring, and those institutions that make it up. In other words, what you might say is we need a, a philosophy of institutions that sits between our um, ethics and our psychology of the individual and our um, politics on the other hand. Gentlemen at the very back. Whilst we have been living for three years an unprecedented experiment of a coalition government, which for us, or people who are of a conservative bent, is a very strange phenomenon, Whilst 18th century politics were a, co- a collection of coalitions, they were gen- without the modern constraints of party political philosophy. What do you think Edmund Burke would have thought of a coalition agreement which would have lasted the entire parliament and was not put to the electorate before the election? Um, well, it's interesting. So, so Burke thinks of... Uh, Burke is the progenitor, as, as you're hinting, of the modern idea of not merely of representative... Uh, uh, government um, and the duties of an MP, but also of the modern notion of a political party as a body of men, and of course it was at the time always men, united around a political principle or a public principle. Um, now, it's not impossible that if those public principles and the circumstances under which those public principles are to be applied are um, sufficiently uh, salient, that those people might come together to form a government, although they aren't originally of one party. Um, so I don't think that's ruled out by his position. Um, in the 1780s, there was, of course, um, the notorious Fox North Coalition. And what is so fascinating about that is that even then, uh, it was regarded with some people with abhorrence uh, because it was, it was thought that Fox had sold out by getting into bed with the evil North, who'd been the person that they'd fought over the previous 10 to 12 years between 1770 and 1780. Um, and so even then it was thought that um, uh, 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 party ties amongst the Rockingham Whigs, which was the first proto-political party, were sufficiently strong to make it not the dumb thing to get into bed with someone who you had so vigorously um, opposed in the previous period. Yes. Um, when you were talking about Burke, you mentioned uh, the idea of de- uh, deliberative equilibrium between principle and circumstance. I was wondering, because it sounds, maybe someone might say, well, um, uh, is, is there any principle that Burke could identify that no matter what the circumstance was, that principle should be stuck to? Or is that moving... Uh, is that something that Burke would... Is, or is, you could say, no, you know, um, no matter what circumstance, no matter what, how the circumstances change, this is a principle we must stick to. Or would... Is that how the equilibrium would work? Or would it be that, I would say, well, potentially any principle might have to be jettisoned? 
Right, so I'm, I'm referring to the kind of poise that the reflective practitioner has when they're operating in this Burkean way in politics. Um, uh, of course, there's a kind of knockdown argument you can say, which is, look, um, does Burke have any principle he's prepared to die in a ditch for you know, that he would hold no matter what? Um, uh, and if he doesn't, that, doesn't that make him a conniving you know, person who'd sell his, his principles to the highest bidder? Um, and the answer is th- there are some things that one can't really imagine Burke ever giving up. He can't re- I can't really imagine him ever giving up, as it were, a, a, um, a belief in the responsibilities of um, the representative or the prerogatives of a properly functioning constitutional um, order or a government that's um, come to power according to such an order. I mean, those things, I think, are uh, principles of him. Are they completely indefeasible under any circumstances? No. I mean, there are moments where he certainly... um, I mean, he does have sympathy for the American uh, colonists. He does have sympathy for the Polish uh, 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 opponents of uh, the impositions of Russia. um, You know, there are other um, uh, uh, rebellions that he's got sympathy with. And And the reason is because they preserve an existing order which is being oppressed by, from, on, from on high. Um, so, so I think um, that he, it, it's, there are no, as it were, beliefs that he wouldn't regard as subject to some kind of review, but some of them will be so heavily embedded that we might not know the difference. Um, and he's right about that. I mean, someone who has a belief that... that um, uh, I mean, you know, conservatives, broadly speaking, never say never, and that's, generally speaking, been a strength. Hi there. Um, you mentioned that Burke believed in a kind of providential um, aspect to institutions being inherited. And I was wondering how that squares with what he takes from Hume, who was a very who, who treated the, these kinds of ideas with extreme skepticism. So, how how skeptical is Burke, or how much of Hume's skepticism did he take on, and how much did he resist the implications of Hume's thought? Um, uh, it, it's a very good question. I, I, I think there is um, a c- quite different feeling about the two. I mean, but Burke is, um, broadly speaking, accepting of the social order. He's not seeking to undermine it. But, you know, there's a kind of free-ranging um, energy about human skepticism, which is completely foreign to the way Burke thinks about these things. Now, um, uh, um, of course, what's interesting is that to say something is a providential order for Burke is not to say that... Um, he believes, I mean, he's not a uh, religious zealot. He's a latitudinarian. He's got a very wide conception. He regards, um, you know, uh, uh, he, he's prepared to be extremely polite, um, not merely a, a, a rude about people who would oppress the rights of Catholics, and also polite about Hindus and um, Jews and uh, Muslims, Mohammedans, as he would call them. And it's interesting, in the, in, the, in the writings on India, which are often taken to be, as it were, the, the canonically natural law writings of Burke, you know, when he's supposed to be uh, expounding some, some uh, as it were, natural law that goes back to possibly of divine origin. Uh, actually, he's remarkably open towards the uh, uh, the culture and the societies and the religious beliefs of the people the, of the peoples of the subcontinent of India, um, which he's thinking about and reflecting on. This gentleman at the front there. Um, would Burke have regarded Margaret Thatcher as a, as a conservative? Um, again, it's one of those questions, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, what would Burke think about the National Lottery? You know, what would Burke think about the, about the niqab? Um, 
I think, uh, I think that a, a modern Burkean would see conservative, some conservative aspects to Mrs. T and some unconservative aspects to Mrs. T. Um, um, and I think Burke, um, you know, classic example, Mrs. T believed in cabinet government um, and uh, in many ways and respected it, at least certainly in the first half of her prime ministership. Um, uh, and in the constitutional order, she was in general highly respectful of it, and Burke would, would admire that. I think he would be nervous about um, uh, uh, some of the grand sweeping gestures um, uh, uh, of her, you know, of her time, um, uh, because he would think that they bring with them, they might bring with them unexpected consequences if allowed to kind of, and he would worry about unleashing popular, as it were, emotions and popular passions, um, uh, you know, as, as, as it might be argued was done with the Lawson boom um, in uh, 1987 to 8. So, so I think there would be some, some I, I think, you know, he might have some concerns on that front. Um, uh, I mean, again, it's a, it's a game one can play forever in different policies. I'm not sure I've got much more to add than that. Towards the back. Um, Jesse, you used the quote. You said um, good government goes with the temper of the, of the people. And I wanted a very unfair question to ask you to be a contemporary historian of, of the coalition and where an example where perhaps what could be seen as a rationally sensible policy struggled when it came up against the temper of the people and whether there's any examples in the last three years where you think they failed well, to heed that lesson. Um, uh, you tempt me into difficult waters. Um, uh, I, I think... Um, we're, thank we're you. recording this. Thank you, Paul. No, I know. Um, I don't know about the temper of the people, but, um, I mean, I, I certainly regarded the um, at, attempt to... Um, overturn the constitution by having elected House of Lords as um, extremely rebarbative to our existing arrangements and to the constitutional temper of, of British society. And I think, I think we would have realised that if it had ever actually been allowed to happen. Um, uh, and it, it, it was interesting that the way in which people reasoned at the time, very often, um, was that they they did have a very rationalising conception of it. So they looked at the British Constitution by analogy with the American Constitution, which they'd studied, um, uh, you know, at university. And so they saw two chambers um, uh, of the legislature and thought, well, obviously, that uh, the House of Commons must be like uh, the House of Representatives and therefore the House of Lords must be like the Senate. But, of course, ours isn't actually a bicameral system, really. It's really a unicameral system. We've got one chamber, which you elect, they choose the government, they pass the laws. Okay? Now, um, the, the, the House of Commons, no piece of legislation escapes from British, from Parliament, without the House of Commons having positively assented to every aspect of it. Okay? And if the House of Commons wants to assent to every aspect, uh, to, to a piece of legislation, it cannot be prevented from doing so. What the Lords does is to create these things which are called amendments, but actually they're more in the character of suggestions. And the Commons comes back and considers them. It either likes them or it doesn't like them. And if it doesn't like them, the Lords can delay it, but it can't prevent them from happening. So, so in under usual circumstances. So, so it's, it's that misunderstanding of our, of our constitution that's at the root of this problem. And, of course, as soon as you take, and I'm gesturing here for anyone who's listening to the podcast, as soon as you take this unicameral thing with a kind of expert long-term feature called the Lords, that is when it's functioning well. And, of course, the Lords needs a lot of cleaning up, and, and that's a separate matter and you can do that without election. But as soon as you move that into, from being that, as it were, um, adjunct function to being a chamber 
with similar kinds of powers to your elected chamber and you give them that legitimacy and that electoral authority, then you're creating the circumstances for um, gridlock and stasis. And if you doubt me, just go and look on Capitol Hill, which is an absolute disaster at the moment. Um, and it, it's, you know, if you think about it, British, the, the joy of the British Constitution historically was that you got uh, the ability to exercise phenomenal amounts of power in a disciplined and ultimately democratic and flexible way, and that would be lost. And on that, I think we really ought to thank Jesse for his uh, very interesting uh, presentation this evening and for a spirited defence of uh, Burke and, and Oakeshott over about 50 minutes. So if you join with me thanking Jesse for tonight's lecture.